So how do humans stay young for 40 years? What is the program that determines that? I think that making it to 110 healthy is an extremely difficult task. If you don't really know what you're doing, come with malnourishment and lots of problems. Biohacking is perfectly fine, but we have to be respectful of where we come from and what we know works. When I came up with the fasting making diet, it was also an idea of being respectful of all these nutrients, these ingredients that make so many people live so long. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. It is always so surreal when I get to interview people that I have looked up to for so long. Since I am also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, it might not be surprising at all that Walter Longo is somebody whose work I have been studying for quite a while. I get questions from you guys all the time about the fasting mimicking diet, fasting and longevity, plant-based diets and longevity, and we really dive deep into all of that in today's episode. I'm super grateful for the work that Walter Longo is doing in the fasting world, and I really, really enjoyed this conversation, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think. These show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash fasting mimicking diet. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. And then there will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fast plus real foods plus life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. And then there will be another giveaway on my Instagram. Also find the announcement post there about this episode and comment to enter to win something I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which may mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, 
their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code CLEANFORALL20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Walter Longo. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. Listeners know that this topic is obviously very, very near and dear to my heart. I'm also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, so fasting is something I talk about and think about and research and do all the time. And I am here right now with honestly a legend in the fasting sphere. I'm here with Dr. Walter Longo, who actually, Dr. Longo, I went to USC, so fellow Trojan here, but he is the director of the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California, fight on. He's also the director of the Longevity and Cancer Program at the IFOM in Italy, and he's the author of the bestseller, The Longevity Diet, which I read, actually, I was going to say the day it came out, but I had a pre-copy of it, so I read before it came out, but I also recently just reread. And he does so much in the fasting world, so much research, so much science. You also might know him as the developer of the Fasting Mimicking Diet and Prolon, which I'm sure we will get into. But I'm just so, so excited. I have so many questions. Dr. Longo, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So to start things off, most of my audience is probably very, very familiar with your work. I was wondering if you could tell a little bit about your personal story about what made you so interested in fasting and aging and longevity. And especially like, I love how you talk in the book about how in your background, you know, originally you were into music, (laughs) a completely different train of thought, but how that actually relates to what you're doing today as well in in your perspective of everything. So um, a little bit of your story. I was a music major, actually a jazz performance major in Texas, at the University of North Texas, which is a great jazz program. 
But, but I'm pretty sure I wanted to study aging because as soon as I, uh, I was 19, as soon as I had an opportunity, actually, they asked me to direct the marching band and uh, I refused. And so they said, well, if you don't do this, you got to do something else. And I immediately said, I want to study aging. And I went to the biochemistry department. I thought chemistry and biology, that's got to be the way to study aging. And it was probably a, a good idea. I just thought, what an incredible opportunity for science, you know, to do science and, and to become a scientist. I think even at that stage, I realized how aging was at the center of, of medicine, diseases. And so I just felt it was such a incredible combination that I couldn't possibly think of anything else that would be so, so important to me, including the, the music. One of the things you talk about in your book is how most of the medical system focuses on disease rather than the concept of aging. And one of the things you say in the book that is something that I've thought about a lot is you talk about how people often ask, why do we age? But if you step back and think about it, maybe the more appropriate question is, why wouldn't we age? And then there's so many theories of aging. And one of the dichotomies you set up that I'm also really fascinated by is on the one hand, you know, there are a lot of theories about programmed aging. You know, this idea that we wouldn't age, but we're programmed to age. And so we have this program that causes us to age. But then you posit that maybe instead there are longevity programs, which I'm assuming if there are longevity programs, that would insinuate that maybe we're naturally set up to age, but we have programs so that we don't age. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the nuance or the difference there, or what do you think is actually happening? Like, are there programs that are causing us to age or are there programs that are keeping us from aging? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and back in the days of, of Darwin, Wallace, and lots of others, they all had thought that aging was probably, was likely to be programmed, meaning that if we try to stay, be selfish and live as long as possible, we would probably hurt the, the species. But eventually they kind of forgot about that. And, and, and this went out of fashion, you know, maybe over 100 years ago. And it was replaced by all kinds of other theories, that evolutionary theories, which do not involve uh, programmed aging. So most evolutionary biologists will say, we're not programmed to age. And then, you know, we came around, I think, uh, I forget how many years ago, almost 20 years ago, and we, we published a paper in yeast, you know, in a, in a unicellular eukaryote, we think demonstrating that they were programmed to die, right, so as an organism. But then, of course, uh, you know, one thing is a simple organism like that, unicellular, one thing is human beings. And so we propose that aging can be programmed, but that doesn't mean that every organism is programmed to die, which is very different from program longevity, which is, you know, the name I gave to, the, to, to my own theory of, of, of aging. And I, I basically thought, well, who cares about aging, right? I always say that I'm in the school of gerontology, but I, I always very much dislike gerontology, the study of aging. I'm much more interested in the study of youth, right? The study of, of health. So then the question is, how do you maintain a youthful state for, for however long, right? So how do, how do humans stay young for 40 years? And, and so what is the program that's, that determines that, right? And I thought that's got to be the way to, to look at aging, not so much what are all the details of how things go wrong, but 
what is this beautiful program that keeps everything almost perfect for so many years, right? And, you know, in a mouse, that's a program that goes about one and a half years. The mouse lives two and a half years, and this, like, very sophisticated youth programs last one and a half. In people, we live for 80 years, and let's say that that program lasts about 40 years. But can we make it 60 or 70 years? And and I think uh, we can, but it's not easy. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's hopefully the answer to your question. You said all species, or not all species, have these programmed aging or their exceptions? We only demonstrated it for one. You know, and, and I think you know, that Darwin and company would be very jealous of the technology we now have because they had that idea a long, long time ago, 150 years ago or so, but they didn't have the tools to test it, right? I think then the theor- theoretical people came around and said, this is all wrong. But this is now just tested and demonstrated, I think, and most people argue with that, for one simple uh, organism, and it doesn't mean that a mouse or, or a monkey or a person are programmed to age, but, but maybe, right? So this opened up the possibility that not, not only there is a longevity program, there is also a death program. Do you think most animals or species have the aging program? It's hard to know, right? I think it's possible, but it's very difficult to know, you know, and even more difficult to demonstrate. So it took us 10 years to demonstrate it in yeast. And, and we, we thought a lot about how, do, how would you demonstrate this in, in people? And, and it's even hard to, to, to come up with the experimental part to demonstrate, right? So we, we, we couldn't, you know, figure out what would constitute a demonstration. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we never got into it. You know? Okay, gotcha. It's pretty cool, though, vindicating Darwin and all these people from so long ago. So the longevity program, is it an offensive or is it a defensive? Like, is it actively creating youth or is it just defending from aging? Offensive, right? By far, right? So it's force of natural selection. This is why it's called the force of natural selection. So on the attack, right? You have a force that is whose purpose is to keep everything almost perfect. And why is that? Because the offspring has to be almost perfect. And until it is, the, the whole process is futile. So until everything is almost perfect, it's better not to do it at all, right? This is why if you don't have enough calories, the system doesn't allow you to reproduce, right? So it basically makes the decision that you don't have enough to carry out the almost perfection so I stop you from doing it in the first place. Does the longevity program always relate to fertility? Yeah, to evolution and therefore to the ability of propagating the germline, the DNA, right? So, yes. So with humans reaching a point where, you know, we don't necessarily have children, do you think that longevity program would eventually figure that out and adapt accordingly. It seems like it kind of isn't aware that we don't always have children now. Like, why is it still in place if a person doesn't have a child? Well, because this is millions and millions of years, right? So so it takes millions of years to to, to develop this, and it will take millions of years to to go away. So the system came up, you know, in response to a, a need, of course, to protect the germline, protect the DNA, and make sure it keeps on going and it keeps on expanding. Now, of course, we don't reproduce that much, or, or if we do, we'd only do that for a couple of times in our lives. 
So then what we and others are working on is, can you exploit this fact? And, and so why are we always stuck on this reproductive mode, growth and reproductive mode, when we never use it? We're not growing, we're not reproducing, you know, 99.99% of the time. So why are we always in that mode? So like you say, right, that mode belongs to ancient history. And so now we're saying, well, why don't you switch to a, what's called a maintenance mode, standby, and only when you need to reproduce, get back into this reproductive mode and reproduce, right? So then, then what we see in lots of organisms that when you, when you go to the maintenance mode, you age much more slowly. Yeah, so that's, that's what we and, and a few others have been proposing. Uh, let's, let's stay in this alternative mode most of the time until it's necessary to get into the accelerated aging mode. So those different modes, like the growth and the maintenance mode, for a typical human, what years do those modes start at? Well, those modes will start at, you know, let's say maybe 13 or 14. I mean, it's a uh, difficult question, but let's say you know, 13 or 14 when you become, you know, reproductive. And, and from that moment on, you know, you're both growing and, and are reproductive. And in a sense... We're always stuck in that mode, right? So from that age on, it never goes away. Why? Because historically, nobody cared about us, right? I mean, evolution, let's say, not nobody, but evolution doesn't care about us. Evolution cares about the DNA, right? So, so then the evolution basically selected based on, I'll, I'll keep you stuck in the growth and reproductive mode so you can have as many children as possible and then get out of the way. Or possibly take care of your grandchildren, you know. So, so that's, that there's some hypothesis about, about that. But yeah, so now, of course, if you don't do that anymore, could you, let's say at age 18 or 19, once you're fully grown uh, or 20, uh, could you now go and, and, and be in a maintenance mode until, let's say, at 32, you decide to reproduce, you get back in that, just enough to reproduce and then go back to the maintenance mode. So rather than having a blend of growth and maintenance, having a concentrated growth mode when you're reproducing? Yeah, the idea back in the days was, of course, to have 20 children, 25 children, right? So maybe half of them would die and the other half, uh, you know, would not die right away. Maybe, uh, you know, half of that would die eventually before age 20. You know, so the, you need a 25 to, to hopefully have two or three that make it weight 50 or 60. So, you know, from this concept of fertility, in a way, a pre-puberty child compared to somebody in menopause are both in a state of not fertility, yet the child, the body knows that it hasn't had a child yet. And the, with the menopause, it's like the body knows that it had a child like, where is that information stored? Because for the baby, they're not aging because they haven't had the child yet. Well, on the flip side, the menopause, even though they're not fertile, their body knows they've had a child, so they're aging. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, where is this information? Well, I mean, you know, and of course, in the child, the idea is that the, the human organism is very complex it needs a long, long time to build that complexity and the sophistication and that perfection. Then with the menopause, the argument, you know, could be in, in line, and there's just an argument and a speculation 
could be in line with programmed aging, right? So is it possible that at a certain point, evolution put a stop at uh, women's ability to, to reproduce because, because of some of the arguments you can make about older people taking up the resources, right? So that's, a, that's one possibility. The other possibility is maybe the, the woman, the older woman is now able to take care of all these children better if she stops, right? And so because she doesn't know how to stop, there is a biological stop to it. Yeah. So that would also make sense, right? So that, 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 you know, when you're 50, if you could continue to, to reproduce, you know, in the old days, instead of having 25 children, you will have, you know, 45. And there is a danger that you're not going to be able to take care of them. There's also danger that as you're getting older yourself, you're going to have damaged offsprings. And so now there is another reason to maybe put a hold to it. But it's speculation. I mean, it's not a field that is very developed and inter- it's an extremely interesting one, but I, I've never seen any official explanations for, for menopause. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. This is so, so fascinating. So like practically and realistically extending our lifespan, what have you found in your research with yeast and rats and humans as far as fasting and calorie restriction and and low protein intake, are these all stimulating the same genetic changes or are they different pathways? They're all stimulating the same evolutionary strategy, right? So, so proteins and fasting removes everything, right? So if you're fasting, the system is forced into this maintenance mode because there's just not enough, nothing to, to grow on and nothing to reproduce with, right? 
But then proteins are at the very center of that, of the growth and reproduction. If you don't have proteins, you're not going to be able to, uh, to have a child. So then it makes sense that the removal of these ingredients will cause the system to go, will force the system into this alternative slower aging mode. And that's exactly what we observed. The problem that for 100 years was ignored by many, many people, including my boss, uh, Roy Walford, back in the days at UCLA, was that this can also, if you don't really, really, really know what you're doing, come with malnourishment and lots of problems, right? So uh, the, the wishful thinking for the longest time was that the severe restriction was all good. And now we know it's about health good and health bad, right? Like, like most, I always say, like most things that are old, they're about they're, they're health good and health bad. Yeah. So then, then if you are severely restricted, yes, you turn this alternative mode and you age more slowly, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also become malnourished and, and you might be immunosuppressed. So the immune system might start malfunctioning. Your muscle, you lose muscle mass, you lose bone density. Is a, just to give you an example. Recently, vegans, a paper came out showing vegans have two and a half fold increase hip fractures, right? And just by being vegan, right? Not even no restrictions and just probably a, a pretty good diet generally. Now, it doesn't mean that every vegan is, is, is malnourished, but certainly two and a half times more fractures. It's just remarkable. So, yeah, so I think the other, on the other side of the metal is malnourishment. And so now with the fasting, and particularly periodic fasting, the question has been, can you just intervene, let's say, once every three months for five days? And, and could that reprogram the system into a maintenance mode without making you lose the muscle, the bone, and without forcing you to do something extreme and, and very unpleasant for so long, right? So that, you know, I, I guess I spent 30 years now since the Walford years in, in 1992 investigating how to, how to do that. And I think we feel we're, we're pretty close to that. Going more into that, you know, that three-day program, just practicing, like mentioning the vegans, for example. So is that from the low protein intake, the bone fractures? It's probably from mostly from the low proteins. It could also be from the general low calorie, right? So it's low calorie, low protein, but then also the restriction, right? No milk, no cheese, uh, uh, so the pescatarian, for example, they did not have that problem, right? In most cases, they were even better. There was a trend for better than the carnivores. So, but for the vegans, you saw that problem. Yeah, so lots of restrictions and on top of that, protein restriction. Why? It would take about half a kilogram, about a one pound of legumes per day to have enough protein for, for most people. If there weren't... <laughs> those issues, do you know if the effects for the aging perspective are additive, assuming you don't die from malnourishment or so like if you combine low protein and fasting or combine calorie restriction and low protein, do they add on to each other or is it kind of like pick one? low calorie or low protein they may add on to each other but they may add on to the problems as well right so if you, let's say you were low calorie low protein you're never going to get diabetes let's say or very rarely you rarely get diabetes you're probably going to be very protected from cardiovascular disease you're going to be protected from cancer at least you know that's all the data suggesting including lifelong data from monkeys but you know you might be very vulnerable to viral infections 
And it doesn't even have all bacterial infection. It doesn't even have to be all viruses or all bacteria. You could even be protected against some. But if all of a sudden you're only protected against half of the type of bacteria and the type of viruses, that puts you in, in very high danger eventually to be in trouble uh, because of, uh, of an infection. Yeah, so, so they could be additive, but they could be additive in the good and in the bad. That makes sense. I'm so fascinated by it because the diet that I pretty much follow in my daily life is I do intermittent fasting one meal a day in the evening, but it's extremely high protein actually. So I'm always wondering if, you know, since I'm doing the, the fasting, is that creating all the benefits while still getting all the benefits of high protein? Like, do you know how long mTOR remains elevated from a high protein meal? Can it be mitigated by a daily fast or do you really need to fast longer? It can certainly be mitigated. I would say there is really no reason to have a high protein diet. There is no reason for muscle building. There is no reason for anything else that I've ever seen, you know. So the data, even on children that have very high protein diet, is, is, is almost undetectable effects on growth compared to those that have a normal protein diet. So, you know, probably best to go to a normal protein diet, you know, then the rest of it is, is the rest of it that you decide to do. But, uh, but I think that there is really, I, I don't remember, because even the studies on muscle building, uh, they show about 30 grams of proteins, uh, of good quality proteins, maximize muscle uh, growth in that particular training session. So let's say that you went to 60 grams a day. That, that's about as much as muscle as you could possibly grow. So, yeah, and, and that's still a pretty reasonable, reasonably low protein diet. So, yeah, I would not know of one benefit of being a, on a very high protein diet. I like it for the extremely high satiety. So I basically, you know, eat a lot, but I, I think it might end up being naturally calorie-restricted just from the satiety factor. And I want to be low protein in spirit. And when I try it, I just get starving. And I don't know if that's like, maybe I need time for like my nitrogen balance turnover to adapt to it, but I'm haunted by this protein question. The recommendation I give is to, of course, you do need an adaptation period. So the recommendation I give is to eat lots of good fats and lots of vegetables, you know, so that should have the same effect. It might take you a couple of months to convert, but let's say that, you know, you rotate among the, the sort of the vegetables that you, don't, you know you like and don't, don't hurt you or don't bother you. Eventually, you know, if you have a big dish that contains, let's say, olive oil and broccoli and, and spinach and whatever it is that you like, that eventually will fill you up, both at the, the, the level of the intestine and the stomach and the, at the level of, of the brain. For, for the great majority of people. But it is possible, you know, the genetics do affect people in different ways, right? So the, you, you might have some, some, some genes that, that make you particularly dependent on, on animal protein, let's say. So that's a possibility. Have you done studies on like high plant protein versus high animal protein or on the flip side, low plant protein versus low animal protein and how that affects things? Yeah, so we, we've done that, and we've done it alone, and we've done it with Edge of Anucci at Harvard. In both cases, if you look at overall mortality, those that had high proteins from animals, they live shorter, and, and there was quite a, quite a difference. The, high protein, the, the low protein people live 70, had 
reduced risk of mortality compared to the high protein group. But if it was high from plant, then that effect went away. But when it, got, when it came to cancer, that was no longer the case. It was just, it went from fourfold increased risk to threefold increased risk for those that had the highest uh, protein intake. So, and, and Giovannucci showed the same thing, showed uh, lots of negative effects of a high protein diet only if it is animal-based. Are those people eating like a maintenance diet calorie-wise? No, no, right. So, so yeah, in your case, in the case of many people, of course, yeah, if you're doing certain changes, it may be that they help against the, the high protein, but it may be that it that they do not, right? So, so you're, you're gambling, basically, right? It's a big gamble. So this is why in the book I talk about five pillars. And the idea is, you know, could, could let's say that you do 18 hours of fasting a day and then you have lots of animal proteins. Could the 18 hours of fasting a day get rid of all the problems of the, of the proteins? Yes. But did anybody ever do that study? No. So, so it's like going to Las Vegas. I want the study done. Have there been studies done on not fasting, but calorie restricted high protein diets? Yes, but there, you know, usually those studies last, lasted about a year or so, and who knows what, what's going to happen. But the people that had high protein, they were, were uh, calorie restricted high protein, the IGF 1 was not significantly lower until they went to a low protein diet. Right? So, calorie restricted high protein was not different from the animal, regular uh, animal containing diet on, on uh, growth factors. So growth factors aside, did they experience the proposed negative effects of high growth factors or did they not? No, no. I mean, they, 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 this is calorie restriction. So they were eating, let's say, 1,800 calories a day, and this is mostly males. So it was working. It, it was, they were doing very well. But they did not get the benefit of the of this IGF one, which is at the very center of, of longevity studies in many many different organisms. So then the the question is, you know, would they get, for example, after twenty thirty years, would they get the benefits on cancer? Would they get the benefits on diabetes, et cetera, et cetera? Maybe yes, maybe not. But but they were doing, you know, the the changes. Lots of changes were very positive in spite of the IGF one being normal. The IGF one and the um, the issues from it—is it possible there's a difference between it being from protein versus from just energy toxicity, like too much energy in the system? Yeah, no. IGF one is known to be affected by lots of things, including energy. Calories is known to uh, be affected by milk-based products and by proteins. So, in fact, we're about to publish a meta-analysis on that, uh, looking at all the things that in the diet that affect IGF one. So, yeah, so there's, there's different things that affect it, but, you know, in, in the human studies, only protein, you know, so if you took calorie-restricted people, normally they ate lots of proteins like you, and they did not have a lower IGF-1. If they then kept the same identical calorie-restricted diet, but they went to low protein, now you saw a big drop in IGF-1. Okay, gotcha. In your research, I'm assuming... You know, you do a lot of research in yeast and mice and humans. When you're doing research in mice, I have had this question for so long. How does it compare a mouse to a human as far as the timing? So like a typical fast in a mouse, like a 
24 hour fast. Does that correlate to a 24 hour fast in a human or is that more like days in a human? Well, it, it depends on the mouse, right? So some mice, let's say in a couple of days, they would get the benefits of, of and there is all kinds of fasting, right? but let's say that we're talking about the, the sort of longer fasting. In a couple of days, most mice in a couple of days will get the maximum benefits of fasting. Sometimes it takes three days. And, and for people, it's, it's, it's about twice as much, right? So it, it doesn't mean that it's equivalent, but it means that you see a lot of positives and we don't see any negatives, right? So it is possible that, you know, let's say 20 days of fasting are equivalent to, or if not 20, let's say, you know, 10 days of fasting are equivalent to two in mice, but, you know, we can't do that because it's just going to, it's too difficult and it would potentially have safety issues. Okay. So when you say like two or three days in a mouse, that's two or three completely fasted days or with an eating window? No, no, completely fasted days, right? So, and that's one type of fasting. Then you can do, let's say, alternate day fasting. And there, you know, mice and people, people have done the same. Exactly the same. So I'm not sure that that's necessarily a good idea, but that's what people have done. So they take a mouse and they fast it every other day, or they take a person and they fast it every other day. Yeah, so fasting, you know, we don't do that, right? So we don't do either, we do only 12 hour and 12 hour timers to the eating, and then we do the, the periodic fasting. I do recommend for people overweight to skip probably lunch uh, or dinner. And eat breakfast uh, if they're if they in the period where they're gaining weight. So when I'm reading like fasted studies, like you mentioned, like alternate day fasting, or if there were studies doing like a sixteen eight approach in mice, I'm always just wondering if if I should take that at face value for translating to humans, or if it has more implications, if it's like more stressful on the mouse. Yeah, no, you shouldn't you shouldn't take any mouse data at face value. I think the mouse data is just there to guide us to uh, epidemiological, clinical studies, studies of centenarians. And, and uh, yeah, so those are the pillars that I describe in my book. So the mouse should be like, hmm, that's how it works. Okay, so then let me go to human clinical trials, et cetera, epidemiology, and see, you know, what's the human version of that? But uh, oftentimes people, and we, it happens to us also for cancer, They'll see a mouse study and, and we fast, the, the, say, the mice for two days and they'll, they'll do two days in, in, in for their cancer treatment, right? Which is, of course, fairly dangerous. For your fasting mimicking diet, how do you set it up in the mice? Well, you know, we give them the fasting mimicking diet, right? So we give it to them for either an hour. Uh, we, we have the humanized version, which is either, you know, four or five days. And we do it the same way. After a while, I think we, we get a sense for how to translate things, you know, because we, we look at markers. So we look at IGF-1, IGF-1, glucose, ketone bodies. You know, when we do human clinical trials, we look at how long does it take for IGF-1 and glucose, et cetera, and, and now leptin to decrease. And are, are we satisfied with that level of decrease? And, and if we are, then we're, we're, that, that's okay. I mean, mice, we, all, we get much more steeper or larger effects much earlier, right? So you can get a 70% decrease in IGF-1. In people, you may get 
30% or 25%. We have to sort of do things in mice and, 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 and keep in mind that's a mouse and then translate it and it's not always a, a mathematical formula in different diseases and different trials. We do different things for, for people. Sometimes you go seven days, then you go four days, and then you go five days, even in humans. Okay. Yeah. I was reading a, a research paper last night that was comparing the days in a mouse to humans and how it changed based on the developmental stage of the mouse. And I don't know, it was really complicated. I was like, oh my goodness. With the fasting mimicking diet, do people respond pretty similarly with their different biomarkers or is there a lot of variance in how people respond just with growth factors and glucose and all of their blood markers? Some people will respond very different than, than others. But on average, let's say the majority and sometimes the great majority of people respond similarly, right? So even between different trials. So we've now done at least four trials where we looked at, maybe five or six trials actually, where we look at IGF-1, et cetera. You know, in, in every trial, we see a significant change in the IGF-1 and the leptin and the insulin, et cetera. So most people, or let's say on average, people are responding. Then if you do what's called a scatter plot and you look at how each individual responded, you might even have a couple of individuals out of, let's say, 100 that move in the opposite direction, right? So you see a very clear, everybody goes down, and then you see maybe a couple that will go, stay the same or even go up. So, yeah, those are the exceptions. But overall, in, in many of the markers, we see similar changes for the great majority of the people. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What When Wine. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. What do you see in the um, like cholesterol and triglycerides? And since people are probably losing weight, does that go up transiently during the fasting mimicking diet? Yes, it seems to go up transiently a little bit. And then eventually after three cycles, we see a significant increase, particularly in the total cholesterol. It's not a big effect. It's not like we, we see with other markers. Uh, let's say glucose or, you know, even blood pressure. But yeah, we see, a, I think even in the newer trials, we see a small but consistent decrease in total cholesterol. So you talked about how you set it up with not fasting um, more than 12 hours. What's the reasoning for that or what concerns you about that? 
Well, what concerns me about the, the, say, 16 hours are a few things. One is uh, all the, the data on uh, breakfast keeping. Right? So there's a number of studies, including our own, which we never published, looking at what happens to people that skip breakfast. And most people that do 16 hours, not all of them, but most of them, will skip breakfast. And so the breakfast keepers are, uh, tend to live shorter and have more diseases than the ones that they have breakfast. And of course, you could say, well, maybe the breakfast skippers have bad habits and, and other problems. But um, I always say, I'm very surprised that if the 16 hours was so beneficial long-term, that that wouldn't counterbalance the problems, right? So why don't they at least live normal? So when you see a negative association like that, you have to wonder, maybe there are problems with the heart. Maybe there are problems with, with some other systems that this continuous, say, higher level of ketone bodies, you know, this continuous fasting may be affecting. And the other one is the gallstones, right? So, so people that fast for 16, 18 hours a day have about twice as much uh, the chance of ending up losing their gallbladder compared to those that fast for 10, 11 hours a day. Combined, uh, these two things have to make you um, consider the long fasting as uh, something that people should just do for a relatively short period. You know? So if you do it for a couple of months because you're trying to go from A to B, I think it's probably a good idea. But you know, if somebody says, I'm going to live like this, I would say probably not a good idea. I would go with the 12 hours, 13 at the most. You know, reason for that is that that does not involve breakfast skipping. It does not get in the danger zone for gallstones. And I always say I've never seen a single negative study about the 12 hours on 12 hours off. Right? So that, that's, that's pretty good. Have there been studies on breakfast eaters who fast longer? So like just eating in the morning? Breakfast eater, the fast, well, no, I, and that, that would be nice to have, right? So what, what happens to people that skip dinner? Yeah, so, so we don't know, right? So yeah, it is possible that, that uh, but, but we go back to the gambling, right? So even if there was a study, it took 20 years of breakfast skipping studies to come up with the negative, and meaning that every single study was negative. So, yeah, so it's, even if somebody published something was good or bad, we wouldn't really know until 20 years go by and we have enough data to say, okay, now we're getting a pretty good idea of what's going on. You know, this is get, breakfast keeping is not good for you. I've been really curious about the gallbladder thing, and I was trying to find studies about it, and I found one that was really perplexing. It was saying that at like 12 hours, there was an increased risk of gallstones, but at 16 hours, there wasn't. And then it went down. Like, do you think it's possible it could be a transitory thing, kind of like with cholesterol rising during a fast? Well, the studies that I've seen, and I've looked at three or four different ones, is a 16, 18 hours is the maximum risk. And then if you go for three or four days, then it goes down, right? Then it goes back down because I think that the, 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 this cholesterol aggregates eventually with the long fast disappear. So for sure, one study with women looked at 16, 18 hours, and that's where they saw the peak risk. I'm not the one you're referring to, so if you want to send it to me, I'll look through it. But uh, I've seen several, um, all 
in agreement with this long fasting, daily fasting. And if you look at even medical clinics, in most of the cases, they'll, they'll say people that fast regularly, they, they put it as a risk factor for gallstone. I'll send it to you. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. It makes me really wonder about people who are doing like a daily 24-hour fast. If there's that possible potential of a risk because of the increased risk or because they're fasting, you know, just a little bit longer, is it mitigating the risk? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is uh, turning people into guinea pigs, right? So <laughs> this is why in the book I talk about five pillars. So I, I think that, you know, making it to 110 healthy is an extremely difficult task as it is probably best to take very little chances right in evolutionary biologies biology we have a saying that is most mutations are deleterious what does it mean that means that most changes you do to the dna dna are actually problematic right rarely a mutation is making things better so the same is true for any change that anybody could do not based on any real deep data. So most of those changes are going to be detrimental. Well, why is that? Well, because, you know, after billions of years of evolution and, you know, certainly tens of thousands of, uh, of years of evolution of, of humans, we do things for a certain reason, right? So why do we eat three times a day? Why most people, you know, eat and, and fast for 12 hours? So... Are, are why most people sleep at night, right? So are all these just happen to be like that and they're probably not needed? Or are they, in fact, the result of evolution and of a selection, right? Even within the, you know, even the last four or 5,000 years, it's likely that, you know, the, the whatever medical doctors or, or, or scientists we had started making observations, right? Well, people that do this don't do so well. And so, you know, eventually we, we do what we do uh, in most cases, not all cases. Some things maybe are just bad ideas, right? Then we need to eliminate. But, but this is why you want to, usually we go to the centenarians, for example, and we say, well, what's common between Loma Linda, California, Okinawa, Japan, you know, Seoul or Sardinia, and some of the other very lonely areas of the world? And then we say, okay, that's probably a pretty good strategy, right? Because it allowed all these people to not only live long, but to reach record longevity. Everything else is a really sort of dangerous gamble. That's really interesting. I had not heard that before about most changes being negative or more likely to be negative. Wow. That's really interesting. You talk about how when you're creating the, the fasting mimicking diet that before blood markers that you found either in, I don't know, was it fasting? It was the, the low IGF-1, the blood glucose, the high ketones, and the high growth factor inhibitor. I was wondering with those markers, is there really any difference between being in the fasted state, creating that compared to doing like the fasting mimicking diet, creating that, or is it pretty much the same? Like, is there anything else different with having the complete absence of food? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big difference is that what I think is really fundamental, which is biohacking is perfectly fine, but we have to be respectful of, of where we come from and what we've been doing and what we know works, right? So when we came up, when I came up with the fasting making diet, it was also an idea of be respectful of all these nutrients, these ingredients that make so many people live so long, right? 
and be so healthy. And there were vegan ingredients. And so I went in and looked for the, the things that, um, independently of the fasting, made people healthier and better. And, uh, and I think it was a very good idea. So, for example, a couple of years ago, we published on the inflammatory bowel disease. We, we showed that, um, that uh, water-only fasting actually made the gut leakier, right? And the fasting mimicking diet was much stronger in, in the regenerative process and also in causing changes in the microbiota, in lactobacillus, bifidobacteria, the protective microbiota, right? So, so I think, uh, uh, you know, even though I didn't necessarily expect this, I'm happy that I picked this. I was respectful of what hundreds of years of research have shown to be positive. You know, all these ingredients, all these vegetable ingredients and the prebiotics that they contain because it turned out that, yes, they are positive and, yes, they fed the good bacteria, which then protected the gut from leaking and also stimulated regeneration and stimulated all kinds of uh, protective effects. So, yeah, that's just one benefit. You know, of course, the other benefit is eating. You know, one thing that is underestimated by most people is how difficult it is for people to go. I always say it's very difficult for people to go from four coffees a day to three coffees a day. So I think it's very important that for most people to give them alternatives and, and that they can, uh, where they can maintain these habits of eating and the ritual of eating while at the same time getting the benefits of, of fasting. And then, of course, the safety concerns. I mean, water-only fasting, you know, could cause hypertension, hypoglycemia, you know, low salt level leading to hypo hypertension and extremely low uh, glucose levels that, and carbohydrates level that, uh, or absence of carbohydrate levels in the, in the food that, you know, can lead to hypoglycemia. So these are just some of the, the many reasons why the fasting-making diet uh, is there. And I think it's there to stay. And, and, and not the least is that the physician eventually is going to want to see something that is being tested clinically in a, in a very consistent way. And they're only going to accept that, you know, and not improvise the intervention. When listeners, if they do prolong or do the fasting mimicking diet, I got a lot of questions asking, because a lot of my listeners do practice intermittent fasting or do like a one meal a day pattern. Can they eat the fasting mimicking diet, the prolon, in a shortened window, or does it need to be throughout the day? They can eat it in the shorter window, but I don't recommend that it goes less than 12 hours. Okay. Okay. And how do you, <laughs> I know this might be a, a loaded question, but how do you feel about doing DIY versions? I know there's a lot of people out there trying to do DIY versions of it. I mean, you know, Obviously, the, the, you know, I'm not in, the, in this uh, to, to make money. I donate everything to charity. I don't take consulting from the company. So to me, it makes no difference. You know? So um, I think that people should stick with what's clinically tested and you know, not trying to improvise. We've seen so many people get in trouble. You know? Some people end up in the emergency room. And, and it's just that it's hard to explain to anyone how complicated some of these things are, right? So especially when it gets into cancer, into diabetes, into interaction with drugs, on and on and on. Yeah. So, so you know, even an expert, we've seen medical doctors get in trouble for improvising. So I think even for an expert, it would be extremely difficult to have it all figured out. 
and, and be able to do, the, do their own thing. Yeah. So I would say we're really looking at minimal investments and, and there's certainly the, I hope at some point this is just free for people and as part of uh, you know, insurance companies, reimbursement, et cetera. Until then, you know, most people have to do this maybe three times a year. So it's a really a minimal investment that most people can afford. And I would say, uh, I would strongly, strongly recommend uh, to do that. And, and I don't mean it to try to advertise the company, but really, you know, based on, you know, do what's extensively tested, not just for efficacy, but also for safety, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time. That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body 
in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I'll put a link in the show notes to Prolon. I would love, love, love for listeners to try it and report back and tell me their findings doing it. I know, especially for a lot of my listeners, I think a lot of them are into really high quality food anyway. And so I think the cost, I mean, it might actually be cheaper doing Prolon for five days compared to the food that they might be purchasing originally. Some random just rapid fire fasting questions that I still have. Do you know with stem cells, because you talk a lot about stem cells in your book and how the fasting mimicking diet and other things affect stem cells. Do we have a, a limited number of stem cells? Like, Can you deplete your stem cells if you do too many of these practices or is that not a, a concern? Well, no, it is a concern. We didn't see this in mice, you know, to tell you the truth. So we started in middle age and we went all the way to very old age. We did not see this. But we did see at a certain age, the mice were not doing so well anymore. Let's say the equivalent of a 90-year-old, right? So, so, so it is possible that some depletion of stem cells uh, was involved there. So we don't recommend the fasting-making diet, let's say, after the age of 70, in most cases, in general, I don't recommend more than three times a year unless somebody has to do it. So yeah, so those, those, those are all things that should protect people from even the possibility of, of running out of stem cells. In fact, uh, probably the opposite, right? So as you promote the stem cell dependent, uh, I mean, we know this for, very well for mice. You know, we, in, in, for humans, we're still at the beginning of the studies, but let's say for mice, when you expand the stem cell population, now you have much more of this pluripotent stem cell. We've shown this very clearly. Not pluripotent, but uh, long-term acting stem cells. Like We've shown this very clearly for the, for the blood system. And so once they expand, they're what's called self-renewing stem cells. And so they're the, they're the kind of stem cells that can eventually maybe prevent depletion of stem cells and not, not that's exciting. <laughs> Do you see with the fasting mimicking diet, people that have immune conditions, autoimmune conditions, does it speed up the process of eradicating immune, autoimmune problematic cells? Like what's the normal half-life of a, an immune cell that's targeting something it shouldn't be targeting? Can a fasting mimicking diet eradicate that? Yeah, so we published a number of papers uh, on that, right? So we did that for multiple sclerosis, which is autoimmune. We did that for inflammatory bowel disease. And now we're doing other autoimmune disorders. 
So yeah, very clearly in the in the multiple sclerosis and IBD mouse studies, we've shown that the fasting mimicking diet could lower and in some cases eliminate the, the autoimmune population. And in the multiple sclerosis, we also had a, a clinical trial, a small clinical trial, but a clinical trial showing already effects that are stronger than continuous ketogenic diet. So this was continuous ketogenic diet against just one single, one week long fasting mimicking diet. And the FMD worked better in, in improving the quality of life of the patients. So now we have multiple trials, uh, you know, at least five or six around the world on autoimmunities. And we just have to wait and see. But certainly, at least in mice, we're starting to get the picture that fasting and the fasting mimicking diet, which is respectful of where fasting comes from, are activating a very sophisticated set of programs that go after anything that is damaged, right? So because otherwise it would be very difficult to, to justify. Why, why does it work with so many different things? Right? So then it will make sense that the, the, any organism will have the ability to get rid of damaged components and then turn on regenerative programs and replace the damaged components with new ones. And you know, how do we know this? Well, if you cut yourself, the skin, within a couple of weeks, it's back to almost perfect uh, status, right? So we already know, so is it possible that no matter where you cut yourself, that's fixed, but if there's a problem with your liver or if there's a problem with autoimmunity in the, in the gut or autoimmunity in the, in the spinal cord, that's, that cannot be repaired, extremely unlikely, right? So probably the body has the ability to repair many, many different things but we sort of moved away from, from fasting further and further, and, and eventually we maybe got rid of something that is the most powerful thing that you can do to, to achieve that. That is really, really incredible. And speaking of repairing, so the future of longevity and anti-aging, is it repair or is it replacing? The future, uh, in my very biased opinion, is in activating embryonic developmental programs, right? So as we've been showing with the fasting mimicking diet. So the future is, you know, I always say you take a 40-year-old or a 45-year-old, well, men and women, and they can make a perfect child, a perfect baby. So that, that tells you that no matter how old the cells that come from these individuals are, uh, they know how to make something perfect. And so that's the future, right? So it's very clear that, that, that that's the way to go. Now, the more we are respectful of the history of that, and the more we're going to get there, uh, the better we're going to get there with um, doing lots of damage to lots of people. You know? So, and that's, I think, you know, certainly fasting and fasting making diets are, are one way to do it. And maybe there's other ways to do it, but I think that's the way to go. You know? So if you, if you have a damaged uh, pancreas, as we've shown, you do the fasting making diet, and now this embryonic-like developmental program goes, turns on, you start seeing the NANOG and OX4 and all these genes that are really only there when the mouse is first born. And, you know, within weeks, they start rebuilding the cells of the pancreas that were no longer working. And they know exactly what to do, right? So it's really, really remarkable how it works, right? This is why you cannot avoid, you cannot not think that it's a program and a very sophisticated one. And we're just sort of like giving them the go, but we don't know what we're doing. And the system already knows what it's doing. So with embryogenesis, since it's creating something new, it sounds like it's kind of a hybrid of repairing and replacing. 
for aging in a human? If you're activating that in like the pancreas or other, or is it just repairing with these factors that are typically only used in an embryo? It's not necessarily repairing because, you know, in the process of, of fasting, you're shrinking, right? The system is shrinking. And so all this is, all this is doing is to probably say, uh, and I always use the analogy of the wood-burning train, right? So it's probably saying, if, if, I, if I'm a, tra- a train that burns wood and I'm running out of wood, I'm going to go back in the train and pick the oldest wood that I can find, right? The chairs that are ruined, and I'm not going to pick the good wood. You know, I'm going to put the, the bad one, and then I'm going to burn that. In the process, I'm going to become lighter. I consume less energy. I make it to the next train station. And then once I make it to the next train station, I can rebuild whatever parts of the train I took off, right? So yeah, this shrinking is getting rid of things by a self-eating process. There's nothing to repair necessarily. In the re-expansion, then the stem cells and other cellular components are are used as a as a, a guideline to, to rebuild, right? So be, why? Because the, every cell already has the genetic material and knows how to do that. Yeah, so then it's just using the, the, the genetic information and the, and the local information. So I'm in a pancreas, so I can see that things are not working very well. So I, I, somehow I'm guided to make new pancreatic cells that make insulin, for example. Wow, that's fascinating. So do you think immortality is an option or even aging backwards? Yeah, it will be for sure. Immortality is a tough one, but yeah, aging backwards, yes. Immortality is a tough one and then it gets into all kinds of ethical issues and it's a tough question uh, to answer, but and that's not what we're focusing on. But I think, you know, if we could live to 120, 130, very healthy, that would be a, a big, big achievement, you know? and you know, not only that, but could we live to 80 very healthy, very young, you know, could we, could we be young until 70 or 80 and healthy until 130 and then, then die right after that? That, that? that would be sort of like an ideal situation for everyone. Yes, this is amazing. Well, the last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's actually something that you end the longevity diet book with, it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for having parents that got to a very old age. (laughs) So I think uh, I I have the genes. Uh, I have good genes. So genes are the, the number one factor in longevity? Yeah, genes are, I mean, if you look at this, a lot of these longevity zones from around the world, when we started looking into it, it turns out that, yeah, nutrition is very important and exercise or being active is very important. But most of the time we also see what appears to be a very strong genetic component. So recently I went down to my parents' area of the world and there's a guy named Rocco Longo that lives about two miles away from my, my parents' house in a little village. And Rocco was 100 years old and he was still driving. And usually when, when you know, a 100-year-old tells you, I'm driving, you say, yeah, right. And this guy, no, he's like going to the grocery store every day with his car. He's in perfect condition. So I thought, I just hope I'm related to this guy because, because uh, he's looking good, yeah. Oh, I have to ask, is he a wine drinker? How do, you, how do you feel about wine? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with wine. You know, up to, say, three to five drinks a, a week uh, are mostly associated with neutral to positive effects. 
People that need to watch out are those that have risk factors in the family for certain cancers, including, let's say, breast cancer. Although the effect of alcohol and breast cancer is not a big one, but uh, yeah, there are a few cancers uh, for which alcohol is a risk factor. So if you have a high level of that cancer in the family, probably not a good idea even to drink less than, than five. But otherwise, you know, for most people, there is nothing wrong with, uh, with drinking three to five drinks a week. I would say if you haven't drank, drank before and, and you, know, you don't have the, the need to drink, there's no need to start. It's not something that you know, we recommend as, as a way to live longer. It's, it's probably, if you look at the, all the meta-analysis and all the studies of studies of longevity, it's fairly neutral. You know? It's fairly, there is no good or, or bad effect. So I would say if you like to drink uh, up to five drinks a week, it's fine. And if you don't, don't, don't start. Well, that works for me. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Longo. This has been absolutely amazing. I follow your work so intensely and I'm just so grateful for everything that you're doing. For listeners, I'll put links to everything in the show notes. There will be a full transcript. I definitely recommend doing the prolon and letting me know how it goes and sharing it in, in the Facebook group and all of that. Is there any other links? How can people best follow your work? Uh, my work, you know, USC, University of Southern California, and also the, the foundation. Uh, we now have a clinic, the uh, Create Cures Foundation. I think it's createcures.org. Please, uh, if you're interested, that's a nonprofit uh, foundation trying to help people that, that are in trouble, but also trying to help everybody else. And, uh, yeah, so createcures.org. And, and, of course, the books and all the, the profits from the book, uh, from my part, at least, goes to, to the foundation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. I so appreciate your time, especially with the time change for listeners. Dr. Longo is in Italy right now. So this has been absolutely amazing. And hopefully we can talk again in the future. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got it.